2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. A few months ago, a stingray got pregnant. Except there were no male stingrays in the tank, which raised a question. Who's the daddy? Who's the daddy? Who's the daddy? But scientists think... There is no daddy. And it's not just this stingray. All kinds of animals are getting pregnant all on their own. This week on Unexplainable, what exactly is going on here? Follow Unexplainable for new episodes every Wednesday. Hello, and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, your co-host with Max Linsky and Aaron Lamer. Cheers. Hey, guys. Another time. Another time around. Another time, another iced coffee. Evan, who's on the show this week? This week I talked to Linda Villarosa. She is, among other things, a contributing writer at the New York Times Magazine. She also directs the journalism program at the City College of New York. She's written for a lot of places. She's written about science. She's worked as an editor. She's done all sorts of things. We talked about her career. She also wrote a really big story last year about racial disparity in medical treatment for expectant mothers, um, which was really a big, big story. So we talked a lot about that. That story is incredible. Uh, it, was, it was on our uh, top 10 of the year list last yeah, year. I yeah, would, I, and I would say possibly the most discussed story, like a story I've seen that has radiated, created multiple stories pushing outward from the original reporting. Yeah, she and uh, she was really great to talk to. If uh, you've got a story that you think might radiate out into more stories, uh, a great way to get people hooked on your writing is a email newsletter. You start off uh, with uh, a little uh, seed of something, snowballs into a uh, newsletter empire. You do it all with MailChimp. They're our sponsor. They help make the show possible, and we thank them. Now here's Evan with Linda Villarosa. Linda, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for coming in. I, uh, you have a lot going on right now, as I understand it, including a book that you're digging into. Yes. Um, Teaching, a book, a lot of speaking, and some <laughs> writing. <laughs> so I'm glad we were able to do this. And I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was this big story you had last year in the Times Magazine, which I feel like was one of the best stories of the year and is sort of the subject of your book, although we talked a little bit a minute ago about how it's different. But I wanted to find out a little bit more about your career. I was reading old stories of yours and going back to the times and essence and previous eras. And I couldn't find a lot about how you got into journalism. So I'm curious. I know you grew up in Denver, but maybe we could just start at the beginning in terms of were you a kid who grew up wanting to pursue writing and journalism in some form? Yes, I was that kid. And I had a great aunt who babysat me on Wednesdays, and she was a retired teacher. So I learned to read very early because I was with her all day Wednesday, and she taught me how to read. And she said to me, you're going to be a writer. 
How and old I think were you at this time? I was time? like four or five. Oh, wow. And so I was just struck by that. And I always remembered that. And she was a favorite great aunt and an important person in my life. And I really took that to heart and stuck with it. And so I studied journalism in college at the University of Colorado at Boulder. And then I came here for an internship said I would never live in New York City because I'm from this beautiful mountain, mountainous <laughs> place, then realized, oh, if I want to be in journalism, I need to come to New York. What was the internship that you... It was um, connected to NYU, and it was sort of like ASME, the American Society of Magazine Editors, mm. for black people. So we were the black ASME, and that's a terrible way to say it, but that's, you know, it was like these black people who wanted to get into journalism, students from around the country. And it was a great opportunity. I ended up working for a women's magazine, but for the health editor of that magazine. And so I was really intrigued and wanted to pursue health. And what magazine was that? Women's Day magazine. So it was mostly about cakes and bunnies and, you know, crazy stuff like that. Very Midwestern. But the health editor was very instrumental in teaching me how to, you know, sort of to be interested in that topic. And then when I eventually got to Essence magazine, I ended up as the health editor. And I loved it. I got a fellowship at Harvard School of Public Health, which, again, sort of made me be more serious about health. It was less women's magazine and more serious topics, mm-hmm. and I really loved that. I went to the Times in the late 90s, where I was the health editor, so I edited the health pages of Science Times, and that was a really good experience in the short term because it's very stressful there in the newsroom, and I was a magazine person, more laid back. So I ended up not staying in the newsroom too long, but stayed connected to the Times. And then I met my editor a couple of years ago, I guess three years ago, at a party. This Is this your Times Magazine editor? Yes, Jessica Lustig. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I pitched a story about gay, black, and bisexual men living in the South who have the highest HIV rates in the country still. And so that ended up being a cover story. So that was my first one. And then my second one, I think I pitched them both at the same time, was on maternal and infant mortality. So I want to go back and pause in some parts of that story. So when you arrived at Essence, first of all, at that time, what what time frame was that? So it was in, I think, it was in the late 80s. And what was it like there at that time? Like, what was that magazine like? The magazine was very interesting because it was very social justice but that was new for women's magazines, and a lot of the black magazines had done that before, but it was different because I came from a background of women's magazines, so to go to one that had more of a social justice frame was really interesting and wonderful. So, you know, like I'd be in a meeting and we'd be talking about lipstick and we'd be talking about hair and cover models. And then we'd switch to something super serious like environmental justice or some race related issue. And it was very interesting time. And it taught me how to do social justice journalism. And I think that Essence and other ethnic publications don't get enough credit for that. And you, you eventually, I mean, you were kind of a health editor there and then the executive editor. Was there a path that you considered where you just would become, you know, the editor-in-chief of that magazine or a similar magazine and you decided not to go down that road? I thought I would be the editor-in-chief eventually, but then I realized that if I wanted to pursue a career in journalism, I shouldn't stay at ethnic media my whole career. Mm. And so I made the decision to leave and I started looking and I interviewed at Time magazine 
and the Times. And then I eventually thought, you know what? I love the New York Times. I need to go work there. It's been a dream. I used to carry a little Times masthead, you know, around in my wallet. <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> as my intention wish. That you would you would be on the masthead. That, that was the, well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> that didn't happen. But well, also now, the Times actually, masthead is kind of, yes, it's weird. It's it not is, just like all the people that work there. It's like a... It is true. I don't fully understand who ends up on the Times masthead. I managed to get myself on the Times Magazine masthead among the contributing writers now, so that's close enough. <laughs> so when you um, when you were at Essence, you wrote a story about coming out with your mother, and I I was so intrigued by this story because it's like it's literally a back and forth between you and your mother in different perspectives, and in some sense. It feels like a story from a different era, but then in another sense, it feels like a story that probably happens still every day all over the place. And so I wanted to talk about that a little bit, just in terms of how hard was that to do at the time that you did it? Oh, that was extremely hard. And I didn't really want to do it. I wanted my mother to do it by herself. Ah. And then the editors convinced me. They said, you know what? It would be better if you did it with your mother. And, you know, I was trained as a journalist, so I was like, you know, I really dislike writing about myself, so I don't want to write in the first person. I was very belligerent, and they talked me into it. And I also felt like I'm just leaving my mother to hang out there by herself, so I need to do my part. And I think what was good about that article was the back and forth, Mm -hmm. both of our perspectives. We still get letters from people asking us to help them with their coming out. Um, wow. Coming today? out, yes, today. How long ago was that story? That story was in the early '90s. Yeah, and you know, it made a huge difference because that was a time when a lot of people were coming out. It was in the sort of like Ellen era, and so there was a lot of coming out at that time, but not a lot of African Americans were doing it. Um, we didn't realize that it would be such a big deal when we did it, but I'm very proud of that, and I'm very proud of my mother for you know it was very courageous on her part to do that and to do it as a labor of love for me. Yeah, and that that again made me think you could have just sort of gone into the personal essay sphere, I feel like. Like that was like a it was a really powerful and obviously it had a big impact. Like there's a whole thing of the letters that came in and it was on the cover and everything else. And was there a point there where you thought Oh, maybe I'll write a memoir about this or I'll I'll sort of write start writing about myself all the time. I absolutely not. <laughs> and even at the Times magazine, they my editor has to drag it out of me. She said, I think it's okay to have a little first person here because and it was in the LGBT story about the black gay and bisexual men in um Jackson. I needed to write about sort of the down low, the so called down low. Because, you know, that's an issue for in the um, black gay community among men. And so I really didn't want to. And I was writing in a really weird way because I felt like I had been partly feeding into that when I was at Essence and even um, when I was an editor at the New York Times newspaper. And so... Um, my editor said, you know what, this really sounds bad. <laughs> this is this doesn't sound like you're writing. What's wrong? And I said, oh, and I said the whole thing, and I feel so guilty. And I, she said, well, why don't you write it in the first person, see how it feels, it's more honest, and then you can, in a way, apologize and sort of get over it. And so I did that, and it felt really good. And in the maternal and infant mortality piece, I also realized it's weird not to tell my own story in this piece. Right. I also had a birth that was very difficult and a pregnancy that wasn't easy. And so I need to talk about that. Yeah, that's that's a very powerful part. Actually, both of those 
pieces. And the HIV piece, I mean, that was so fascinating to me because I remembered the Times Magazine story about the down low and reading that and to read your story that was kind of reflecting on it, not entirely rejecting that narrative, but saying we need to reconsider this basically, right? And that it's also so much more complicated mm. than um, that. And it has to do with acceptance in the community. So I think, you know, somebody said, well, there's down low um, in every community. I said, well, of course, but there are people who are terrified of losing their so-called black card or being kicked out of the black community, which is a safe haven for us. And so it's really frightening to think, oh, if I admit that I'm LGBTQ, what is going to happen to me? Am I going to lose my home? Am I going to lose my community? Am I going to lose my family? And that is, in fact, not only terrifying, it's also dangerous. Correct me if I'm wrong, but when you came to the Times and I was looking at your sort of Times era stories, but you were editing and writing, right? So I could only have a window into stories that you had written. A lot of the issues, or at least these two big features of the last two years, I saw those issues actually coming up in pieces that you'd done way back then that you were trying to look at these issues. So did you feel like when you arrived at the Times, you were trying to get people to focus on things that they didn't want to focus on in terms of the newspaper? Oh, definitely. It was um, very subversive. I think they didn't understand my background exactly when I got there. And so a lot of times during that era, there were different doctors and different experts that the Times was using over and over. Hmm. And so I was introducing a whole new set of people. And a lot of people that I was interviewing that I had met, mostly black people, black physicians, black um, scientists, said, oh, I've never been interviewed for The Times. And even black activists, oh, The Times has never talked to me. And so I thought, oh, well, I'm going to talk to you. Um, the other thing that was I was joking around about this, but... The Science Times comes out on Tuesday, and Mondays are often holidays. So I would try to work on Monday so that I could be closing and I could be, like, pulling my stories through when no one was there or fewer people were there, like, looking out and looking over my shoulder and that some of the more interesting stories came out when just before a holiday, like before Labor Day or Memorial Day, because I was there, you know, pushing through these people who had never been in the Times. Can you remember any examples of things that you sort of got in that you feel like wouldn't have gotten in? One person was definitely Phil Wilson. So Phil Wilson is the um, founder, recently retired founder of the Black AIDS Institute. There'd been no profile on him. And so I did a profile on him and he's really smart and he knows a lot about black gay and bisexual men and HIV and survived AIDS himself. Um, there was also, I don't remember the guy's name, but it was this kind of tiny bit wacky, but smart black geneticist that he had never been interviewed in the Times. There were there were also, there was, oh, I know, there was a woman who was a scientist at UCLA, and she was talking about how slavery led to some problems in black women's sexuality. Mm. So I was like, oh, that's an interesting topic. And I had met her at Essence. I said, I want to get her into the newspaper. So those were a few of the different people. But, you know, we had been doing other kind of in uh, Science Times, we did other kind of people who were interesting, you know, sort of a little bit edgy, but often those people were not black. And so I felt like it was a little bit mission driven um, because I love the newspaper and love the magazine and people deserve to know these things and also people deserve to be covered. Hey, it's Max. Quick break to let you know that our show 
is brought to you this week by The Great Courses Plus. Uh, I read all the time, and uh, I read articles mostly because I uh, help edit the website longform.org. But part of the reason that I read all those articles is because I'm a uh, curious guy. I like to know about things. And another way that you can know about things is to check out The Great Courses Plus. It's a streaming service that offers in-depth and unique perspectives from top engaging experts in their fields on virtually any topic, like from uh, how Winston Churchill shaped the world we live in today to string theory. What is string theory? I don't know. I'd be curious to find out. I could do it on The Great Courses Plus. They've got tons of courses, and you get unlimited access to watch and listen anytime, anywhere, and also... Just to uh, put a fine point on it, there's no homework. There's no exams. This isn't school. It's just a place to indulge your curiosity to learn something. Uh, That is what The Great Courses Plus is all about. One course that you might want to check out, given your interest in uh, our program here, is called Writing Creative Nonfiction. It's a fantastic step-by-step guide to help you better understand how to tell your own story every step of the way, everything from brainstorming to finding an audience and getting published. uh, It'll take you step-by-step how to do the kind of work we're talking about on this show all the time. I think you will get something out of it. Go check it out, Writing Creative Nonfiction, but check it all out. And you can do it free right now for a month. Take your knowledge to the next level with The Great Courses Plus and enjoy this special limited time offer, a full month to enjoy The Great Courses Plus for free, only at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash longform. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash longform. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. Let's get back to Linda and Evan. And what made you decide to leave the Times? Um, I think it was just really I had two young children. My father had recently passed away. And I was like, oh, I don't think I can work these like this anymore. I need to sort of get myself together, get my life together, get my children situated. And so I decided I want to still be attached to the time. So a lot of those articles you read, probably I was writing from home. Uh, I so I ended up sort of being a permalancer kind of person for the Times for about six years. So let's talk a little bit about these two stories in particular, because I feel like they both hit on this theme of sort of like, a health issue that's ignored from a certain perspective and that people think of as even solved. Um, and I'm, I'm curious how they both came about, like the HIV story. How was that percolating with you and how did it sort of land as a story? I think it was in 2016, there was a report from the CDC that said, if current trends continue, half of all black, gay and bisexual men will be living with HIV. So I'm thinking, how can that be? We know how to prevent transmission. Um, We know how to treat the disease. And treating also prevents transmission. So that seems weird. And so I just started thinking about this, and it really bothered me. And then um, there was another CDC report. It was out of Emory and CDC. And it said that ground zero for this problem is Jackson, Mississippi. So it has a 40% infection rate among gay men, not black gay men. But once I looked into it, it's like almost exclusively black gay and bisexual men. So I thought, wait a minute, why why this city? So I went to a comp, I just got really obsessed with it. So I sent myself to this conference that everyone told me to go to called SOS. You paid your own way. You, you said, I'm just going to go I paid my own this. way, and um, which I dislike. 
So um, it was called Saving Ourselves, SOS. So I'm thinking, why are, why are these people saving themselves? And so I go to the conference, and it's in Memphis. And so then I started asking around there, because I was in the South, um, oh, if you were looking into the situation in Jackson, Mississippi, what would you do? And everyone said the same thing. They said, oh, there's this organization called My Brother's Keeper. It's run by this really wonderful woman. She's actually here. And then also there's this guy, Mr. Cedric, who takes care of all the men there. He has a car. He drives around. He's like an angel. Everyone said this to me. And I thought, okay. So I met uh, Dr. Gibson, June Gibson. And I told her about what I wanted to do, that I wanted to come and investigate this. And she said, come, just come just drive down. So I rented a car, had to change my ticket. You know how much that costs when you have to change your ticket. (laughs) So I rented the car, changed the ticket, and drove to Jackson and went to my brother's keeper, met Mr. Cedric, and he said, when you're ready, you come down and spend like a week or 10 days and just follow me around. So I pitched the story to the Times Magazine because I had that opening. And Jessica and Jake, the editor-in-chief, liked the story and assigned it to me. So it was my first magazine piece. And then I went down there. I spent a lot of time there. I did everything with Mr. Cedric. I drove around with him. I delivered medication to people. I went to the clinic. I picked up people um, from school, from work with him and brought them to the clinic. I went to the club. I went to the support group. I remember one of the comments on the story was like, did one person write this? this, How did this person get to all these places? So then I, you know, we worked on the story. And I remember I had a little pushback about something. I don't remember exactly what it was. From the the editor. And so then Jessica said, well, you know, this is a cover story. And I was like, silent. I was like, wait, this is a cover story? And so the other thing that I had done is interview a lot of the people that I had met over the years covering HIV back in the day. And so I interviewed maybe 30 or 40 people. And I traced the history of why black gay and bisexual men in, at the time, 2017, were still having these high infection rates, high death rates, and why the South. So it was a really deep dive. It took a really long time, and it took a lot of intense editing as well, which I really appreciate from the Times. But also amazing that you had this history to call on in terms of covering it, you know, as opposed to going in cold and saying, okay, now I've got to go find experts that you basically had a Rolodex of people. Exactly. Not an actual Rolodex. but but... Probably not a literal (laughs) Rolodex, although I I wouldn't judge that either. Who knows? uh, It's a good technology. I ended up in, I think it was 1986, 85 or 86, I wrote the first story about AIDS for an ethnic publication. And this was before, it was not even called AIDS. So whatever year that was, it was still GRID, gay-related immune deficiency. And so I got assigned this piece, and it was my first big piece for Essence. So I ended up going to the Bronx to this woman who had this new disease that was still called GRID, and um, she had a baby. So it was the woman who was very ill and the baby. And so the baby was sitting on her lap, and then I realized she's getting too weak to hold this baby. So I was taking notes with one hand and holding the baby with the other hand. And the baby looked up at me and smiled, and the baby's mouth was completely white. So I'm like, I don't know what this is. I see this very ill woman who said she thought she had gotten this illness from her boyfriend who was a drug user. So then I left, and I was kind of freaked out. 
um, my the editor-in-chief of Essence had a professor who was a biologist. So I called her and said, why would the baby's mouth be white? And she said, oh, the baby probably has this thing called thrush. And it, you know, this is the first time I'm hearing about thrush. Now it's well known. Um, when your immune system is so compromised that you get a yeast infection in your mouth. And I was like, oh, my God, this is terrible. So I wrote, you know, I did a lot of research. The article came out. And then by the time it came out, the mother and the baby were dead. So I realized, oh, okay. And it, at the time, the assumption was this disease is only affecting white gay men. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, that was the narrative. And so I was hoping to change that narrative. And so, you know, I was assigning and writing pieces for Essence. By the time I got to the Times, I was still covering it. And I thought, this has got to be over by now. Because by the time I got to the Times, the medication had come out, the so-called cocktail. But the black community was still being affected by this disease and the death rates were really disproportionate. So then when I was seeing in 2016 that this was still happening, that's when I realized and I went all the way back to, you know, when I first started covering this and thought, why is this still here? This makes no sense. We have known how to fight this disease. And then I thought, wait, I know about this. (laughs) So it was an easy, I mean, fun isn't exactly the right word, but I did enjoy doing that research and to do something, um, I think, positive for that community and to shine a light on, you know, not just what's happening there in a tragic way, but also in a empowered way. And I really do think, you know, the names of the organization Saving Ourselves, My Brother's Keeper, are unfair. This is a national problem, a national emergency, and it's not fair that, you know, people have to take care of themselves. Yeah, it's people saying, we'll do this for each other because no one's paying attention to our particular community. That's exactly right. I could see how that could also be just, I don't know, incredibly dispiriting, just that you've been covering it for so long, and then to arrive in 2016 or 2017 and have them, some of that still be happening. Does that get to you? I think what it does is it makes me angry. So, I mean, anger is not necessarily the best motivation, but it is a motivating factor for me. It's like, why is this still happening? Why do people still believe these things? Why are you know we ignoring this legitimate health problem? And so it's dispiriting in one way, but I feel like, oh, if I can make a difference, if I can shine a light, you know, the New York Times is the paper of record. And so if I can just get this in the public record, it'll exist doing this kind of research, going back, drawing on my earlier work is really important for me to just get it down, get it written, get it, even if it, you know, is a historical document, it's an important document. And the the sort of deciding to go to the conference on your own and exploring this, is that something you do for other stories? Do you go scout out other stories at your own expense to try to find the ones you really want to do? Are you kidding? <laughs> I'd be broke. Um, no, I was just really <laughs> obsessed with this because I think of my background and because, you know, I had a lot of friends who um, have friends who are living with HIV. I have friends who have died from AIDS. And so I did feel like, oh, this is really important. And it was also important for me to go back into, you know, where I felt like, oh, we had leaned into the idea that black, gay, and bisexual men are so-called disease vectors. And not on purpose. It was more like, in my mind, we were thinking, oh, this problem is hurting black women. But at that time, at Essence, at the Times, some of the work that I was actually doing was ignoring black, gay, and bisexual men and worse, blaming them. Mm -hmm. So I felt like, I mean, I wasn't the worst offender, but I had bought into some of that and I felt like I needed to correct it. 
just from a kind of uh, process of writing a story like this perspective, there's a kind of luxury of time in a sense of then when you take that trip and you get to spend 10 days or however many days and you're going, you're at the club, you're at all of the places that you want to see and all the people you want to interact with. But then you have to, I mean, the story is long. It's like nine or 10,000 words, yes. it seemed like. But you still have to find the exact characters that are going to, or characters, wrong word, uh, sources that are going to really tell the story. So how did you set about organizing all that reporting? It was very difficult. I think that I'm very friendly and easygoing. And also, I have roots in Mississippi. So it was really... Um, and Mr. Cedric and I, he was like my brother. They invited me to his their family reunion because I spent so much time with him. And he was like, people were like, who's that woman who is always with you? And he said, oh, that's my New York Times reporter. <laughs> so he loved it. He got a kick out of it. But we got along really well. And I think that I'm learning this about myself, that I'm really good at sort of imagining how someone's feeling and very intuitive in that way. And I didn't know that about myself. And I maybe knew and avoided it because it's hard. Um, I was talking to someone who's an actor and she said, oh, that's the process of acting is when you just delve so deeply into someone's personality and it's partially personality, but it's also their work and what drives them and the intersections in my life and their life. And so I think I'm kind of good at that. And it's coming out now. It took me a long time to sort of do that because I was such a, I felt like, oh, I'm a hardcore journalist. I like working for this newspaper and even my magazine pieces are the most serious thing in Essence magazine. Now I realize, no, I'm kind of okay at this other thing that is more character driven. It's more narrative based. And that was something that I hadn't done as much as I'm doing now. And is your persona as a reporter different when you're spending time with, you know, him? Are you trying not to reveal too much about yourself? and just keep the spotlight on him or keep a running conversation going in which you're also talking about your own experiences? Do you have a particular approach? It was very funny. I was talking to, I went to the Craig Newmark CUNY Graduate School of Journalism because I'm an alum, so I went back to talk to students. And so they had read both of my pieces. So this one student raises her hand. She says, just like this, do you have no boundaries? And I was like, mm, kind of no. I, <laughs> um, I'm. It's very back and forth. I'd say all the people that I interview pretty much know my whole story, and I figure, well, they can look it up. <laughs> it's yeah. pretty easy, so I might as well, you know, be honest and open and transparent about who I am. Um, I think that both builds trust, but it's also fair. Um, but after that, I usually stop talking so much, and I think people talk to me because they don't feel heard or listened to or seen. And so most of the people I'm talking to, whether it's the scientist, uh, whether it's the doctors, whether it's just real people, they don't feel like their story gets heard. And so I just try to really listen. So where did the, um, where did the idea for the maternal mortality complications, everything else, um, where, where did that come out? Because I saw a piece that you had done, I think, for Ms. Magazine that was about Ethiopia and the same issue in Ethiopia. And that that's almost like the traditional way way that journalists have approached it. Like, this is a problem that happens in other parts of the world and doesn't happen in, in America anymore. That's what people would assume. I wondered if that had triggered looking here or if it was something else. Um, that's what I assume, too. So I, I think I mentioned before we got started officially that I play soccer. So I play in this pickup, this 
huge pickup league. And so I was playing and just finishing the HIV story. And one of my teammates works for the Center for Reproductive Rights. And she had been working in the South. And so she said, oh, I have a story to pitch to you. And I was like, okay, I just really want to play soccer. I'm working on this other piece. And so she said, it's about maternal mortality. And I said, I don't cover international issues. I said that to her. You said that? Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. And so then she's like, this is not an international issue. This happens in America. I said, I don't believe you because women don't die in childbirth in our country, which has, you know, the best health care in the world, the most expensive, at least health care in the world. And so she's like, no, it is happening in the U.S. I said, well, you know, I mostly cover issues of race. And she said, well, this is a problem of black women. And I'm like, what? And I said, is this a problem of poverty? And she said, well, actually, a woman with a black woman with an advanced degree is more likely to die from um, pregnancy and childbirth related issues than a white woman with an eighth grade education. So now I'm like, OK, send me something. Is Show this all me like after a pickup soccer game. It was partially during league, it league game. <laughs> and after. And then I ended up calling her to say, OK, I am listening. So tell me, is there a report? Is there something you can send me? So I started looking into this and I was really horrified, but I didn't know where I was going to center it. So I thought it would be in New York City because New York City, the numbers are even worse. A black woman is eight to 12 times more likely to die or almost die in childbirth or pregnancy related complications than a white woman. So I'm thinking maybe I'll do it in New York. So again, I went to a conference, the best name ever for conference, Decolonizing Birth. So it's um, put on by this doula organization, Ancient Song Doula Services in Brooklyn. So I go to this conference and it's so great. And it's all these really interesting social justice oriented doulas, nurses, doctors, people from the Department of Health. And so another woman from the Center for Reproductive Rights knew me and she said, oh, you should talk to that woman. And she pointed across the room to Latona Giwa, who I didn't know. And she's just this beautiful, very serene doula. And there's all these other multiracial group of doulas wearing the same T-shirts. So I said, okay, why? And my friend at the Center for Reproductive Rights said, because she's also trained as a labor and delivery nurse. So she has much more medical grounding than the usual doula. But she's also, her doula organization works with women who can't afford to pay. So... That social justice angle was really great. And then I said, where is their base? And she said, New Orleans. I said, ooh, New Orleans, the food there. Great. That's like the hidden the reason hid- why people pick yes, stories. exactly. <laughs> so I ended up meeting her and her doula collective, the ones that were there. And she said, why don't you come down and spend time with me? And so I did. And so the same way I did with Mr. Cedric, I did with her. So she said, oh, one of my clients said she'll talk to you. And I said, oh, that's amazing. Tell me her story. And so she told me the story of this client, Simone Landrum, whose baby had died the year before when she hemorrhaged. And then she had gotten pregnant again. And she she, almost died as well. And she almost died. And she was terrified with this baby that she was either going to lose the baby or she was going to die. And so she had didn't know what a doula was. And a doula is a woman who helps another, usually a woman, who helps another woman when she's pregnant and during delivery and after. And so she said, I want to bring on this person to help me because I'm really afraid. And I just want to do everything right. So Latona and Simone were paired. 
and they had been working together a couple of months when I came and met Simone. Simone had two children, um, two little boys. So I met them and interviewed her, and she told me her story in the most open-hearted way. And I said, why are you willing to talk to me? And she said, because I don't want anyone to go through what I went through, and I really want to help people. And I just kind of fell in love with her. And then as I was leaving, I said, who's going to be with you when you have your baby? And she said, well, Latona, the doula. And I said, no one else? And she said, no. And then I looked, and she was looking at me, and I thought, oh, God, just come back. And so I said, I will be there no matter what. And so then I wrote my story. I finished it. And then I thought, well, I'll just add on the birth afterward. Uh I didn't think the birth would be such a big centerpiece of the story. So she, the doula called me, and I was at a holiday party. So this is beginning of December, and she said, oh, I think the baby's coming. And I said, "It's her due date is not for three weeks. And she said, well, she has a tendency to have early births. So I said, oh, my God, I'm at a holiday party. You know what that means. I was not 100% sober. <laughs> so I said, oh, my God, I've got to get on a, slapping myself, drinking water. I've got to get on a plane. So I get a ticket. I'm leaving that the next morning to go to New Orleans. And then the doula calls. Latona calls, and she goes, oh, false alarm. I am on the plane. False alarm. I don't think she's quite ready. It was too late. And so I was just like, well, whatever. I'm already here. So I got an Airbnb not far from where. To just stay and to wait just it stay. out. I got a rental car. So I ended up um, spending quite a bit more time than expected with Simone and her family and with Latona and the Doula Collective. And so I got to know them much better. I got to know Simone really well. And I saw, um, you know, I met her doctor. I met you know, I went to the hospital with her. I took her to appointments. I picked up the kids from school. I was really involved because I was just doing nothing. I was, you know, just sort of going over the story and making sure it was tight, but that wasn't really that much. So then I took her to what was supposed to be her final appointment before they were going to induce the baby because the baby wasn't coming yet and it was getting late. So the doctor said, we're going to induce. And I said, when? And at that appointment, we're looking at the screen and it didn't look so good. The baby's heart rate was all over the place. And she said, today. And Simone and I are looking at each other like, I'm terrified. And she's scared. And I said, let's call Latona immediately. We need to get her here. She is a labor and delivery nurse. She's a doula. She will get us through this. So you're now a you're now an active participant. I'm now totally active participant. And I haven't said who I was. And we were wearing these funny Team Simone shirts. Um, Me and Latona were wearing them. So, you know, no one knew what was going on. I was not recording anything. I wasn't even taking notes. I was just really scared. And it was a little more touch and go than it should have been. But in the end, um, the baby was born. And, you know, Simone was really scared until she heard him cry, until uh, the doctor had laid this baby on her chest and he cried she was not clear that she was going to survive or that he was going to survive because yeah. of the tragedy of her previous birth. Well, I remember reading it and I I just thinking if she loses the second baby, I'm not going to be able to handle it. Like that was the Me narrative neither. of the story. Yes. yes. That you, you started with the one that she lost and then you just, it, you couldn't tell where it was going until you got there. So it was, a, it was very tense, I would say. It was very tense, but it was, Latona was so kind and so calming 
And I think the thing that I what I was really struck by is there are so many machines involved with childbirth. You know, like I was hooked up to a machine because my baby was, you know, had a problem. And Simone was hooked up to every kind of machine and IV, all this stuff. And you can't kind of take your eyes off the machines because they're telling you about her heart rate, the baby's heart rate. But Latona was not looking at the machine. She was looking at Simone and she was taking care of Simone. And I was really struck by that, that, you know, all the rest of us, including me, were looking at the machines, the doctors, the nurses, but Latona was steely focused on Simone. And that was really important. She was trying to calm her down. She was trying to make sure everything was okay. She was taking care of her. She was taking care of her needs. And I think that is the gift of having a doula, is that the focus is on the mother. And did you then, when the whole thing was over, go out and furiously write down? How, how did you, how were you able to reconstruct those scenes? Crazily writing down everything. Just like after the baby was born, I said, oh, I need to go home and take a shower. So I actually did take a shower, but then I was mostly reconstructing everything because it was, you know, it was within a few hours of when it had happened. So I needed to get it down on paper. I was writing by hand because I was just like, oh my God. And I was so tired too. So I just, I got it all down. And I was like, this is crazy (laughs) because I'm a little forgetful. So I was trying, usually I record everything, but it was so tense. I kind of forgot. And the Times had sent me down with a quite a nice machine to record things and was saying, please record things for our podcast, Mm -hmm. um, The Daily. And so I was like, whatever, I cannot do this. I need to be here and I need to focus. And I was, you know, need to hold this woman's hand. I'm now part of this. I can't be taking notes and recording things. But I was able to reconstruct. It was so dramatic, too, that it was easy to, but I had to do it in the next few hours before I started forgetting things. And you mentioned before that you then added your own experience into the story, your experience, birth experience with your daughter. And was that something you were thinking about at the time that it was happening or later that you sort of thought, actually, I have something from my own experience to add to the story? Well, what I realized is, um, you know, other people have been writing about maternal mortality because it took me so long to write my piece because I was with this woman. I guess I spent maybe a total of eight months on this or nine months. Nine months, that's ironic. (laughs) I birthed my own baby. And so what I realized is I started thinking about this issue of maternal mortality. I'm like, this is very similar to infant mortality, which I know more about. Infant mortality has long been a concern in the black community. You know, I reconstructed it back to 1850 when mm. there was a the disparity now, the black-white disparity in infant mortality between black babies and white babies is greater than in 1850. And somebody just asked me, I mean, like today, did you actually mean 1950? And I said, no. Today? Today, like, this morning on Twitter. Also, even 1950 would be bad. It like, would, be that would be really terrible. bad. 1850 is like staggering. It's crazy. How could that be? when black women were actual slaves. And so I started thinking about that. And I first heard about this disparity, black-white disparity in infant mortality when I was at the Harvard School of Public Health. And I read a study in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it was about college-educated black parents versus white college-educated parents. And so I was really intrigued with this idea that income and education don't protect and so then I started thinking about my own situation. Well, I was like, well, what was I doing with a low birth weight baby? And low birth weight in this study um, from the 90s when I was at Harvard 
low birth weight was the contributing factor to infant mortality. It was the greatest factor. So the two factors are preterm birth and um, low birth weight. Hmm. So I was like, what am I doing with a low birth weight baby? I was working at Essence. I was highly paid. I was the executive editor at highly that point. Highly educated. Highly educated. I also had been the health editor. The doctor was, you know, on the Upper East Side. She was my friend. And so I could tell her everything. I totally trusted her. But she said, you know, something is wrong here with your baby. And I was like, oh, my God, what? And she said, you've got this thing called interuterine growth restriction. So it's when your baby does not grow inside you. So she sent me to a specialist. And the specialist was like asking me all these questions. Do you use drugs? I'm like, no. Do you drink? I was like, well, not when I'm pregnant. I don't drink coffee even. I stop everything. You know, I'm really trying to take care of myself. She said, do you have all these, you know, STDs? Do you have all these different kinds of infections? Do you have all these serious kinds of illnesses? I said, no, I'm in really good condition. And then she was back to the drugs. I was like, I don't use, it was, I think how she asked me was, do you use crack cocaine? Not just cocaine, not just crack, but crack cocaine. I'm like, no. <laughs> so first, do you use drugs? And then, then well, let's just, let me just double check on this. Yes. A, mm. Heroin. I'm like, okay, let's start again. <laughs> and so at first I was kind of insulted, obviously. But then I looked it up myself and I thought, oh, this is why she's asking me because this is a problem, you know, with this particular condition. It is for people who are not healthy, who are using drugs and alcohol. So that's why she keeps asking. And I'm such an outlier with this. So my doctor ended up inducing my baby right at term. So she wasn't preterm, which is great. But my doctor decided to induce her because she was healthier outside my body than inside, which, you know, is very makes me feel sad. Um, so she was born at four pounds, 13 ounces. So that's very small. She fit in the palm of my hand. And I remember she was so small and wrinkled. And when she first came, a lot of my friends were scared to hold her because she was so tiny and fragile. But she came out very hungry. And so uh, she was quickly <laughs> gained that weight back by breastfeeding and then moving to food and then, you know, getting tall and getting healthy and getting smart. And she's wonderful now. She uh, just graduated from college. And um, but I always thought, did this wh why did I end up with this? This is so odd. And does this have something to do with my lived experience of being a black woman in this country? Mm -hmm. And that that also struck me. I was rereading the story yesterday. And I feel like there's this issue that comes up where particularly more newspapery journalism as opposed to magazine journalism. But, you know, d we'll describe things as racially charged comments and race related issues. And the, and the story addressing the research about this issue very explicitly says like racism is the cause not race related issues but actual racism is what is behind these and i'm curious if you had to push for that or that that was a natural editorially because uh, people are always trying to like come up with euphemisms for something that is actually right in front of their faces uh, no i did not have to push for that i think i got a little pushed because I think at the beginning, I was afraid to say it right out. Mm. And so I think I was maybe saying racial bias or something like that. And then I stopped, you know, I said racial bias, but I also said racism. And I think I also became more sophisticated in writing both of these stories in what is the link between some of these issues that are related to race. And I think how I learned about it 
both in earlier reporting and in grad school and, you know, just in my own research earlier, was that race is a risk factor for a bunch of different health problems, whether it's heart disease, whether it's infant and maternal mortality, HIV, um, some of these, and it's just said race is a risk factor. It's racially disproportionate. What it really is, is race is a risk factor, but it's also sort of a risk marker. So instead of looking at what people are doing wrong and what individuals are doing wrong, it's what society is doing wrong and creating problems for individual people, which lead to health crisis. And so it's sort of like bias related to racism is creating problems in people's actual bodies. Mm -hmm. And that's what I came to understand. And it really shifts the blame off of the individual and it really isn't you know and because people feel so bad did i cause this what did i do and it's like no you did not cause this in many cases in african americans disproportionately it is a problem either related to how you're treated in the healthcare system itself or how you're treated in society and how that affects your body. And so that's what I started looking at more closely and seeing that, you know, this isn't every single person, but it certainly is more people than we think. And especially when you start thinking about if income and education don't protect you, it's got to be something. And I think I was tremendously helped in my reporting by the tragedy of Serena Williams. Mm -hmm. And so I took so long to write my story that by then she had had her baby and she had started to talk about, you know, really what was a crisis situation when she was, you know, she's one of the richest, most powerful black women in the world. She knows her body better than any (laughs) normal person. She also has a husband who is super rich and is very, you know, like he's right there with her. And he spoke up too. She spoke up and her legitimate concerns were ignored. And so that is a problem. And that is something that happens to black women across class lines. So I was able to put her example in and I just am very thankful that she shared that. Because it is important for people to realize this isn't just a problem of poor women, though that in itself is wrong. Right. As I understand it, that's that concept is sort of forming the basis of the book, less so than just like expanding the article into a book. You're you're jumping off from that idea. So first of all, how hard is that to sort of figure out where you're going to land all that? Like, how how's that going? That is going very slowly. I hope my editor's not listening. <laughs> um, as I try to figure out where to where to center it, where the narratives are. And there's but there has been so much research and there have been so many stories. I mean, you know, like when you start looking into this, it's really alarming what's going on, both in present day communities and among individual people, but also in the past. Um, One of the things I'm looking into is this case of the Ralph sisters. So they were um, two sisters in Alabama. They were, I think they were like pre-teenagers and early teens who got sterilized without their knowledge or their parents' knowledge. But luckily, there was a wonderful social worker, who black social worker, who figured out what was going on too late. But still, she was able to get a lawyer. They sued. This is in the 70s. And what I'm looking into is I'm studying what was happening in the society at that time. So it was really the second wave of the Great Migration. So a lot of black people came from farms 
because as farming was becoming more mechanized in the South, you didn't need so many people. You know, people needed a livelihood. So they came to cities. And what we know is they came to Chicago. They came to New York. They came to different cities in Texas. They came to Cleveland, Detroit. But they also went to cities in the South. And so there was a wave of migration from rural areas to urban areas in the South itself that is not as much talked about, but that's what was going on at that time. And so that case uncovered that hundreds of thousands of women had been sterilized, black women. And so that was kind of a famous case in the day. So what I'm doing is tracing back to see, I interviewed the social worker, the lawyer, the Southern Poverty Law Center were the lawyers on that case. So I've interviewed some of them and I've been in contact with the two sisters who are still living. And so that is one of the narratives that I'm using in the book. And so I'm trying to find some history, but also some present day people like I did in the past stories. And I'm also talking about my own, my father was treated really, really badly um, by the hospital when he was ill. He passed away, but he was treated badly. And I now have come to realize it was because he's a black man in America. And, you know, when he was pushing back, he studied, he was a biologist in his early career. So he, again, knew he had legitimate concerns. Yeah, he knows what questions to ask. Yeah. So... I'm writing about my own family. I'm also interviewing my mother. I think she's got a story to tell, which I'm going to find out this weekend. Oh, wow. So so I'm trying to, you know, just tell the story of my family as well as, you know, other people's stories. So you're going to be asking your mother things that you you don't know the answers to? Exactly. About her, how she was um, treated when she had her tubes tied. You have to come back when the book comes out to talk about all these stories. I'll have to bring my mother. (laughs) Hey, we'll do it. Thank you very much for coming on the show. If the stories are any indication, the last story, it's going to be a big book. So good luck with it. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you. Thank you for having me. That is it for this week's long form podcast. I'm your co-host, Evan Ratliff. Thank you to Linda Villarosa for coming in for the interview. Thanks to Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer, my co-hosts. Our editor is Janelle Piper. Our intern is Tyler McCloskey. And our sponsors, as always, MailChimp and Pit Writers. Thanks. See you next week.